0: Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. As climate continues to dominate the national conversation, Columbia's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory is a powerful player in the fight to conserve our planet. If you haven't heard of Lamont Doherty, Dr. Arthur lerner Lamb, the deputy director there, is about to change that. Arthur recently sat down with the Lowdown to talk about Lamont's history, the role it's playing in discussions and research around extreme weather and climate change, and why now is a vital time to be talking about it. Here's Arthur.:
1: So we've been here since 49. Uh, we grew up in the uh, post-war age of oceanographic exploration. Um, The observatory in our name is a real expression of our dedication to the collection of data and information about the planet. And as we developed our resources and developed our um, research themes, we began to also get into analytical work in the laboratories as well as theoretical work, basically uh, computational earth science. So those are the three pillars at the moment, observation, analysis, and modeling. Together, uh, those reflect a new age in earth science exploration that allows us to get into a predictive mode about what's happening to the planet, whether it be uh, anticipating earthquakes or whether it be forecasting the weather and the effects of climate on the weather, for example. And that's Mm -hmm. the topic that we can talk about today. One of the uh, things that makes this a particularly good time for us to be involved in a university campaign or in speaking about earth science, is that the notion of human interference or human activities affecting the evolution of the planet itself is becoming more entrenched not only uh, within the population and not only among environmentalists, uh, but within governments and the private sector as well. So in many ways, we would characterize the present time as sort of a pivot point, in our understanding of how human activity and the evolution of the planet are intertwined. We are talking about a new age in geology called the Anthropocene. Um, This is actually an official term. It's going to be voted on by the global collection of geologists this coming summer, so it'll enter the lexicon, the technical lexicon, But it's also becoming embedded in the public imagination of what's happening. You know, the notion, again, that we are in a geological age that is new because of human activity. Um, And future geologists, when they look back um, onto this era, will find a layer in the sediments that is uh, basically reflective of what's been happening in the 20th and 21st centuries and and thereafter. Now, one of the interesting things Topics that has come about somewhat philosophically lately is that what we are doing now has essentially crystallized what the Earth is going to do for the next ten thousand years. In other words, the Anthropocene is in fact a geological era, and we are not simply talking about geological changes on on the scale of human lifetimes and human ac- and human activity. But on the scale of humanity, in some sense, it's almost destiny in that sense. Uh, And in fact, there is in the blogosphere, in our understanding of how the climate system is evolving. All of that is pointing to the fact that climate change is here to stay, that humanity is going to have to slow it down, of course, but deal with it as a matter of humanity's destiny. And that is a profound philosophical shift in the way in which we think we ought to be thinking about environmentalism uh, and about uh, the future of the planet. This is reflected somewhat in some of the shorter term discussions being had at the policy levels and the economic levels. Uh, For example, at the recent meeting in Paris, we saw, of course, sort of uh, political uh, level or national level agreements on what needed to be done, whether that's implemented is another matter, but there's certainly national level agreements at the, nat- at the level of national governments and international government associations like the UN. But the real pivot point, again, I use that term frequently, um, is that the private sector was very much involved. This is the realization that in order to be a good company, you have to take into account this matter of destiny. And of course, companies think of their own destinies on different terms and different timescales. But good management Uh, good private sector performance is going to be judged in terms of the impact and the relation to environmental stress and other environmental considerations. So we find this to be sort of the perfect time for us to be dealing with environmental science as a major effort in human scientific research. Uh, So in the same context as something like, say, the MBBI, we're looking at a convergence of the science the social relevance, and essentially the future of the planet, our future of understanding. Now, I I can also talk about the way in which the science itself is at a pivot point. The fact that we've got new observational technologies ranging from satellites to new ways of observing the oceans and the atmospheres, uh, new instruments, big data issues associated with how all of this information gets processed, Uh, New laboratory measurements. Columbia is a world leader in our laboratory facilities. and, And there are issues with that, of course. But we can claim to have, for example, the cleanest clean lab. We're measuring atmospheric chemistry at sort of the atomic level, basically. And also computational modeling. The need to develop predictive models that can forecast where we're going in terms of human impact on the climate as well as other Earth processes. This used to be called Earth System Science, but it's, it's more than that right now. We're talking about Earth destiny in many ways. And being able to bring the three legs together, observation, analysis, and modeling together, at this time with the capabilities that Columbia possesses, is an extraordinary moment in the history of the science, an extraordinary pointer toward what we expect to achieve in the very near future in terms of understanding what the planet is doing and the human relationship to it. In this introductory sense, I'll remark that the Earth Institute is an incredible component of this because it helps us conceptualize and provide perspective on why all of this matters to people on the ground, uh, to individuals, to groups of individuals, to governments, to societies. And here we take advantage of the enormous depth and breadth that Columbia has in the social sciences and the humanities, not to mention the professional schools, to understand rather explicitly uh, drawing a line between the planetary changes and human social changes and how humanity might react to that. So the time is right for science, the time is right for conceptualizing this as a major Columbia initiative, and the time is right for us to truly understand the evolution of Earth and humanity jointly in many ways.
0: In 2014, the time was definitely right to launch a new initiative on climate and extreme weather at Lamont. With major weather events like Superstorm Sandy occurring more and more frequently, initiatives like this allow researchers to study how extreme weather risks change and what we need to do to mitigate these risks. In the discussion ahead, Arthur explains what the Columbia Initiative is, how it came into being, and why it's so important now.
1: When we look at what's happening in the planet, the planet is dynamic, Okay, so things happen. And uh, you've got earthquakes, you've got storms. You basically have weather, as it turns out. And there's always been this sort of lexical distinction between weather and climate. The notion is that uh, weather is what you get, climate is what you would expect. But, you know, we're trying to understand the relationship between the two. Now, on top of that, even though things happen all the time, yesterday was a good example. It was pretty rainy, and there were tornadoes in Florida, as it turns out. Even though weather is happening all the time, there are specific events which we call extreme events. These are high impact, low probability events that occur so infrequently that they essentially exceed the capacity of society to respond, and until recently they've exceeded our capacity to actually understand them from a physical from a physical sense. So this initiative grew out of the distinction between weather and climate, the notion that climate could affect weather, particularly with respect to extreme events. But how do you actually deal with these extremes, almost separate from the question of climate? Here we are dealing with events that, by their definition, affect us profoundly as a a society. So we need to understand them. Physics and the chemistry behind them. We need to understand what their potential impacts are. And we need to understand ways in which we might be able to mitigate or protect ourselves from them. So the initiative grew out of that. Uh, The initiative, of course, you know, in terms of timing, uh, Superstorm Sandy basically provided the kick that we needed to put all this together, although there had been quite a bit of thinking about uh, what had been going on. And in a very uh, sort of prosaic level, When we say weather is what you get, uh, what that basically means is that many of us have been through enough weather cycles, the seasons, the storms, Mm -hmm. to understand that there's a certain probability behind something happening. So when we hear a weather report in the morning that it's a 40% chance of rain, we sort of intuitively understand what that is. The problem with an extreme event is that it breaks that intuition. It breaks the link between our individual intuition and what actually is happening. And when we break that intuition, what do we need to rely on? Well, we need to rely on science, we need to rely on engineering, and we need to rely on an understanding of how we're going to respond in many ways. Now, in the US, we're fortunate because we have a national apparatus for observing such things as hurricanes. We have uh, an extremely robust base of first responders uh, we have infrastructure that in many ways is resilient, but as Sandy pointed out, it's not resilient enough. We, we've understood that, <coughs> it, that Sandy essentially broke that intuitive link between what we understand whether to be and what actually happens. And so that gave a kick to the impetus to bring together engineering, to bring together the basic science of severe storms in particular, and to bring together the legal frameworks, the medical frameworks, and the philosophical frameworks of how do you deal with this all all together. One particular aspect of the initiative is to develop um, a way to understand the risk from extreme events. And again, in terms of lexical definitions, we differentiate between risk and hazard. An event is a hazard. A risk is what happens because of the hazard. So, we want to know about financial risks, we want to know about structural risks, we want to know about flooding risks, um, we want to make risk maps that will help us plan for the future. And again, there are specific outputs that can come out of the basic research that Columbia does in order to provide that. So, the initiative got started under that perspective. Sandy was the kick, but the notion was that. These extreme events are really something special. Now, as it turns out, there continues to be a debate about what's happening uh, in terms of the climate effect on uh, extreme weather. And the best way to summarize that, and I can do this on a technical basis as well, is that we expect a, even though these extreme events are high impact, low probability, by low probability we mean that we don't understand the probability distribution at all, frankly. So there has to be some predictive elements to it as well. But trying to look over, say, a season or a decade, say, of hurricane occurrence, we can begin to uh, assess the effect of climate change on those scales. So what we are finding is that global warming, the effects of climate, the effects on the ocean and the atmosphere are changing over, say, a decade. The probabilities of occurrence of severe storms in some ways. So they're they're changing our notion of probability in some ways. So it doesn't allow us to predict a specific event or a specific set of events, but it does say over the next ten years say we expect to see less frequent storms, but the storms that do occur will be more severe. So it it allows us to say something about volatility Mm -hmm. in the weather in many ways. So one of the things that uh, Adam Sobel in particular has been able to do, which we have not been able to do uh, in the past, has been to engage the insurance companies. And this is another example of where the private sector has recognized the importance of basic research. Now, the insurance companies and the reinsurance companies, the companies that insure the insurance companies, in particular, have extraordinarily strong back office operations in science and research. They have models uh, that are proprietary. Uh, In particular, they have models that predict the risks to their book, basically what they insure. And that's basically property. So every insurance company has a book of of property that they're insuring. That is a risk that they have to look at. And so they understand or they try to model uh, the potential for that risk to be realized after a particular event. What they found after Sandy is that those models were deficient. So they came to Adam, who is you know one of the world's leading experts on the formation of severe storms for his modeling capability, his understanding. And in fact, they are helping on a project basis to develop better models of severe storm propagation, severe storm probability. So this is a particular link between the research that we do and the ability to predict risk. If you can predict risk, you can manage risk. If you can manage risk, you can pay for it if you're an insurance company. So the initiative is off to a strong start in that respect. And it, it is demonstrating through Columbia's resources in engineering, in the basic research being done at Lamont, and in its affiliation with the business school, with the law school, To be a convening power, convening authority, so that the private sector in particular can understand the more globalized risk profile. And by global, I just don't mean geographical, but global with respect to the responsibilities that the private sector has in -hmm. terms of understanding all risk. And this could also affect policy. It could affect the future of infrastructure planning. And we're already seeing, for example, the very largest engineering companies who make their money off of rebuilding or contracts for building resiliency, becoming interested in this effort as well for a particular reason.
0: But how does this affect people in their day-to-day lives? What should people expect from the weather? And how is that expectation going to change the way people make important life decisions, like working with an insurance company or buying a home? What changes will people start to see, and what can they do about it?
1: When you look at what's happening, On the insurance level, we saw FEMA beginning to develop uh, new flood maps, for example, Uh, and New York City in particular looking at new evacuation zones. All of this has the effect of essentially raising the cost for living near the shore, whether it be Mm -hmm. through your insurance premium cost or through uh, changes in the building codes that require you to rebuild at a higher level. We've learned of people on the Jersey Shore for example, that have had to elevate their homes by 10 or 15 feet as a consequence of new building codes that were put in place after after Sandy. Okay. That's an additional cost. So very specifically, you can draw yeah. the line between what we're doing and costs in some way. More importantly, I think there's another technical aspect with it, which is Sandy and the work that Adam is doing and his colleagues are doing And I should say, by the way, this includes tornadoes and other severe weather, not just hurricane, nor'easters are included. The work that these folks are doing is increasing the ability to give a longer warning to people that might be in Mm -hmm. the range of a a storm, might might be impacted by a storm. So Sandy showed that our national capacity is quite good, Uh, even though the storm itself was very unusual. It was a combination of a nor'easter and a a cyclone that just merged into something incredible. However, it demonstrated that um, at least going out a few days to five or six days in advance, you begin to get a good idea of what's happening with the storm and where it's going to hit and what the impact is going to be. And the hope here, of course, is that the particular damaging components of a storm, the wind speed, where it's gonna hit land, the amount of rain that's gonna come down, precipitation's gonna come down, all of those can be predicted earlier so that people will have more time to sandbag or evacuate or, or in other words, prepare. So uh, the effect of the research will be to increase preparedness mm-hmm. on a short time scale. But the other more important aspect of it is developing public and institutional awareness of the potential for risk and what that will take in terms of investments in the future. This is always a problem with risk calculations. Risk is discounted, especially for something in the future. How much do I spend today to reduce a risk that's next year, 10 years, 20 years out in the future? That's the essential problem with climate change, by the way. But in particular, what Adam, what, what the initiative can do is develop a way to understand how risks are going to change as a consequence of our better understanding of of extreme weather Mm -hmm. and extreme events and what we need to do to mitigate or reduce those risks. Is it adaptation? Do we move away from the coast? Uh, Do we raise our buildings? Do we build seawalls? Do we build green buffers around the low end of Manhattan? How much money do we spend on that? What's Mm -hmm. necessary? How high do the seawalls have to be? These are all things that will come out of that research. So in a very real sense, we will be able to understand what engineering needs to be done to increase the resiliency of our coastal cities. In a more uh, implicit sense, we'll understand through public awareness what sort of policies, what sort of social structures we need to develop in order to be more prepared. Where do we put our senior citizen homes. How should we reflect on the dichotomy between wanting to live near in a beautiful place near the shoreline versus being safe? You know, we have to inform the way we think about life itself in terms of how we measure risk. So the essential question, really, that crosses engineering bounds, scientific bounds, but also social science bounds, is what's an acceptable level of risk to be able to live the lives that we want to live. That acceptable level of risk, understanding what acceptable means, requires understanding in a very quantitative way as well as a qualitative way, what that risk actually encompasses. So that can apply to the individual level uh, in terms of awareness. We hope that it'll, it'll apply. It'll apply to the way in which we vote in terms of things that must be done and and the political apparatus that will implement the things that we need, that. The public thinks might be done. It will also apply to a way we manage our institutions, government, private, public sector as well.
0: When we talk about extreme weather and climate today, the question of preparedness is bound to come up. So, where or when do the topics of climate change and preparedness start to cross? We asked Arthur if there is a way to think about a balance in terms of preparing for climate change alongside the investment that needs to be made to slow down, if not reverse, our effect on the climate.
1: If we understand what we need to engineer in order to build resilience, we can put a cost on it. Uh, By engineering, I include things like moving people away, but particular policies, particular structures that need to be done. So there's the cost. Against the benefit... Now, the benefit would arise if uh, investing in that cost actually reduces the risk at some future time. So you can literally, and this is what our economists at Columbia would tell us, you can literally do a cost-benefit analysis that relates the present value of an investment in infrastructure, say, to the future reduction in risk as Quantified by cost essentially the, the reduction in damage that's done, there are two things that make that a glib answer that make it a difficult answer. The first thing is that we all apply a discount rate to the future, so whether it 's two percent or ten 10% percent or a hundred percent, people naturally would rather spend their money now on something that they receive now than on something they receive l- later and I can actually some Columbia psychologists did experiments on this that I can point to. This is in the Center for Research and Environmental Decision Making. I'd rather get $10 today than $30 tomorrow. That's the definition of a discount rate. The second thing is how do you value life safety? Okay, what is the value of a life? And that has so much uncertainty. It has moral uncertainty as well. In terms of real quantitative uncertainty, the value of a life and the discount rate that needs to be applied make the cost-benefit calculation a very, very difficult thing to do. And in particular, it's a very difficult thing to have any sort of regulatory policy or any private policy for that matter. And it's almost left to the individual. And when the individual gets involved, you begin weighing moral obligations to your grandchildren, to and so on and so forth. And that's where I think you know the humanities come in. What are, what are the ethics? that we have to employ? What ethical thinking do we have to employ in order to justify an investment we make now? You know, the the typical argument is our grandchildren. But, and that is is in some sense, one definition of sustainability. That it is our responsibility in our current generation to preserve the planet or protect the planet so that future generations can enjoy the lives we are enjoying now, if not a better life. That is a, a moral dilemma. In many ways, because I'd rather go out and drive my gas guzzler, say, now and have a good time, uh, or I'd rather heat my house to 72 degrees now than 65. I mean, yeah. little, little decisions like that are right. all essentially moral decisions in the context of sustainability. Which brings us back to the destiny argument. You know, the notion here that what we are doing collectively as humanity is a geologic force is changing humanity's destiny. And that is essentially a moral problem that we face. And that's something that we have to investigate. And what better institution to investigate that than a university? What better university than Columbia? I mean, yeah. I, I can actually argue that very specifically uh, because Columbia has invested through the Earth Institute, through its cross-disciplinary work, in trying to run an intellectual thread from the science through the social science, through the humanities, to try to understand how humanity must collectively respond to the changes that we are, in fact, producing.
0: More and more often, discussions about climate revolve around moral decisions that people need to make. If that's the case, if it's a moral issue then what are the effective ways to help people understand how important those everyday small decisions are in a greater context? Arthur answered that question with a question.
1: What do we owe the future? And most individuals think about their families for the most part. Some business owners might think about their business. Uh, uh, Some folks with fiduciary responsibilities, you know, the investment managers or the CEOs, or the Board of Trustees of Columbia might think in terms of the next 200 years. What do we have to do uh, to stay in business? So it boils down to individual choice. And what you really want to argue is that you have to give individuals, whether they be thinking about their grandchildren or the future of the university, you have to give individuals the tools, and by that I mean the knowledge, that they can use to make their individual decisions. Hopefully, collectively, they'll make the right decision. It's a combination of rational persuasion, in other words, getting the facts out there, and moral discussion. And the rational part's easy. I mean, science is hard, but by comparison to the moral discussion, very easy thing to do. So uh, one of the interesting things about it from a university's point of view is that that's almost the classic definition of ambiguity why you have to have people thinking about this at at the university level. Ambiguity is best dealt with when you try to put a box around the choices that you might have to make. You know, that box may have permeable or transparent sides to it, right, but, you know, in some sense, you've got to be able to define the discussion, and that's what we're best at.
0: During the interview with Arthur, we had an unexpected visitor. Lamont is located on a 157-acre campus in the New York Palisades, which means that nature is always close by. We thought it only fitting that an episode about climate and Lamont should end with a glimpse at that nature.
1: Golden eagle. Sorry. Oh, wow. Uh, We just had an eagle land on a tree. uh, Beautiful. Yeah. So it's one of three or four that are around here. Oh, really? Okay, there it goes. All right. So it's going to pick up a mouse.
0: <laughs> this podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world... The Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.